Welcome to Bethany. Wow, that's loud. Just want to give a couple shout outs really quick uh, as we get started. First of all, I want to just thank the children's ministry team for setting the stage up for the sermon series. Um, I'm not exactly sure if this is how the Sea of Galilee looked, but good effort. Keep trying, right? I want to shout out to the fathers uh, for coming to church today. When, you're, uh, when your spouse was like, baby, you can do whatever you want on Sunday, and yet you still chose to get up and come to church. Good job. Good job, fathers. Proud of you. Proud of you. I want to shout out to, to Bill Scott. It's his 70th birthday on Father's Day. That's awesome. Great job. Great job for being 70. Hey, we are in our Sermon of the Mount series uh, today, and, and, and Jesus is teaching his disciples and to the crowds that are sitting around him and listening what, what true righteousness looks like. And, and in any sermon, in Matthew 5 through 7, it, it is a sermon, and in any sermon, it typically, the introduction should indicate the main idea. It, it should lay a foundation for the the rest of the message, and, and, and Jesus does that in Matthew 5. He, he lays a foundation for the rest of the message, and so it's good before we jump into the text to kind of go back and be reminded of what that, what that foundation was that Jesus laid. And if you remember, he starts with the Beatitudes, saying that a, a truly righteous person, they are poor, poor in spirit, they are meek, they are persecuted for Jesus, they are peace. Makers. So he describes a type of person who is righteous, but, but he also describes the benefit of being a righteous person. He says, your life will be blessed. Your life will flourish if you are these people because you will be the sons of God. You will be fed. You will be comforted. Your life will be one of meaning and eternal purpose because you will be part of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus communicates by living a righteous life on a personal level, you will be brought back into unity, into relationship with God. But he also says by living a righteous life, you will affect those around you. He goes directly from the Beatitudes into the salt and light of the world. He says in, in 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so being truly righteous, it leads others to glorify God. The disciples were introduced to this idea from the beginning. If you remember in Matthew 4, Jesus is walking along the shore and he sees Peter and Andrew fishing. And he calls to them and he says, follow me and you will be what? Fishers of men. That's right. Jesus from the beginning and setting the stage that their life is going to be about influencing others. It will be about communicating a message. So in one sense, we are pursuing true righteousness for the sake of personal reconciliation with God. But in living righteous, we draw others back into reconciliation with God also. So, so the pursuit of true righteousness is missional. It's not a, solely a selfish pursuit. God in himself is a triune God. He is one in three persons. He is in community with himself and community with others, right? One of the benefits of being saved is that we dwell in community 
eternally with God. And so one of our purposes is to call others into community with us so they may also dwell in eternity with God. Our faith is not a personal faith, but what we believe and how we live, it affects everyone around us. It should communicate a message. It should communicate a message to the world around us. We see often people making the statement that their belief in God is their own, and it should not, it should not be pushed on other people, right, to coexist. You've all seen the bumper stickers. That's kind of that message. Just you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, and we'll just live around each other and not affect each other. It's so, it's so popular for politicians now to make the claim all the time in order to stay relevant to their particular party that their faith and their beliefs are their own and should have nothing to do with the policies that they make that affect other people. In fact, this week, Ilhar Omar, who's one of Minnesota's state representatives, she tweeted out, My love for Jesus and the greatness of God doesn't concern anyone but me. My love for Jesus and the greatness of God doesn't concern anyone but me. So, me and Omar, we have a different understanding of who Jesus is, but that point aside, to make the claim that her theological beliefs do not affect others is crazy. As a Christian, we understand that our faith and our love for Jesus should affect everyone around us. Because our beliefs should define how we interact with the world. It should define our choices. Our personal walk with the Lord should not be so personal that it does not affect others around us. Because it's supposed to be communicating a message. And that message should lead others to glorify our Father in heaven. Our text today, we're going to see about how by living truly righteous, it, it, it directly, how you directly interact with one another. How you directly affect other people by pursuing true righteousness. And how it causes us to interact in a way that's so opposite to what is normative in our culture. And, and actually, what is counterintuitive to the way that we as humans believe we should think. Our message should be so radical to the world. So different. Because our message, church, is the message of salvation. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, we're going to start in verses 38. Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. Read with me. I am reading out of the ESV today. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you were to greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Praise me today. Lord, uh, help us understand these hard words. Help me communicate them correctly. 
and help us hear them accurately, Father. Convict us in our pursuit to true righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, uh, we'll be covering the last two examples that Jesus gives of how your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. If you remember back to where Rob Bali spoke, he, he was in Matthew 5.20 and he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from there, Jesus goes on to give us six examples of how your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we've covered them all. Anger, lust. Last week, Ken spoke on divorce and oaths. And this week, we will be on retaliation and loving your enemies. And Jesus is giving examples of how righteousness is not merely what you do on the outside, but it's who you are on the inside. And in every one of these examples, he starts with, you have heard that it was said, because Jesus is challenging the intention and the motivation of the teachers of the law. It is not the Old Testament that Jesus had a problem with, but it's the people's interpretation of the law, specifically the religious teachers who misused that law. Right? And in some cases, which we're going to see today, it was additions to the law, which were not even part of the Old Testament. For instance, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was, that's not found in the Old Testament. So we see in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Church, we have built in us a desire for justice and a need to retaliate when we have been wronged. I have two daughters, Adeline and Eloise, most of you know that. And if, Adel if Adeline hits Eloise, then Eloise is going to go hit Adeline right back. If Eloise takes away Adeline's blanket, Adeline is going to go take away Eloise's blanket. Well, if you have kids, you see this all the time. And, and, that, and that desire, that need for us to retaliate, to seek justice, it doesn't go away as we get older. Right? In fact, I was, at a, I was at Valley Fair last weekend with my family, and I'm driving through the parking lot. And I don't know if the guy thought I was too close to him. He, he didn't make any effort to get over, but he honked at me. So, so I did what anyone does when you're unjustly honked at. I honked back. Right. So he honked again. So I honked again. He threw his hand up out the window, so I threw my hand up out the window. He tapped his brakes like he was going to do something, so I tapped my brakes like I was going to do something. He stopped his car, and I drove on because my, <laughs> my wife said I was acting like an idiot and I needed to grow up. But needless to say, I was just retaliating equally to the offense at which was done to me, right? I only did what he did to me first. They had no right to honk, so I honked back. I was justified in my honking. The internal desire to retaliate and to seek justice when you have been wronged it's ingrained in us. Some of you are like, Matt, you give way too many examples of sinning while you're driving. <laughs> you should just let your wife drive from now on. That might be a good idea. Look, justice is, is ingrained in us. The eye for an eye. It's the principle known as the lex talionis, which is Latin and it means the law of retaliation. Right? It is found in a number of places in the Old Testament. For instance, Leviticus 28, 17 through 20. It says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. And whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury 
he has been given shall be given to him. And so this idea of equal justice, equal retaliation, it was put, in a, put into effect to help govern the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was not only to provide justice to someone who had committed an offense, but it was also to prevent excess retaliation. Right? What you have done to me equally shall be done to you. Let the punishment fit the crime. It makes sense. It provides equality when someone has been wronged. Right? This was instituted to keep family and tribal feuds from getting out of hand. Because we've all seen and we've all heard stories when that happens. I'd like to give an example of, of, of that explanation when there's excess retaliation. It's, it's found in a popular children's book called Huckleberry Finn. Huck is talking to his friend Buck. He says, Huck, or I'm sorry, he says, Buck, what's a feud? Why, where were you raised, Huck? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Why don't you tell me about it? Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man, and he kills him. And then the other man's brother kills him. And then the other brothers on both sides go for one another. Then the, co then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud no more. That's, that pretty much explains it, right? There's a number of stories that people, when you retaliate, and there's nothing in line to keep them from excess retaliate, it just keeps getting worse and worse. One of my favorite stories of this is, is known as the Hatfields and the McCoys. Many of you have maybe heard of it. It's a, a mini-series on Netflix about it. It's about two families, one in West Virginia and, and, and one and, and it starts out with it starts out with one of the families stealing the other family's pig. And then and then someone testifies against the guy who stole the pig and he ends up getting killed. And then those two brothers go and kill a couple other people from the other family. And it's actually a true story that lasted over 30 years of these families going back and forth. And in the end, women, children are murdered. It's, it's crazy. I think over 13 people are killed. And it's just radical. But when there's nothing in place to keep that type of excess retaliation from happening, that's what we see. So, so case in point, the lex talionis, right? An eye for an eye. It helps keep excess retaliation from getting out of hand. And it's also important to note that the, the lex talionis, it was not for individual practice. Check this out. But in the Old Testament, the judges were supposed to make the rulings. God uses this principle to institute government that would provide fair and just rule. And it's still a good principle for governments to follow. Right? The idea that the punishment should fit the crime, in my opinion, is a healthy way for governments and legal systems to operate. And I do want to point out that I do not believe that Jesus is speaking towards governments in this text. Nor should this be applied across the board to support pacifism. As a father, I have an obligation to support and to defend my family. And Jesus is not teaching me to lay down my responsibilities for those who I'm supposed to protect. I believe the same would apply if you're serving in government or if you have an obligation to support your citizens. Right? There are a number of scriptures that support that. I'm not going to go into that message today. But it does seem that Jesus is referencing to this principle because the Pharisees and the scribes, they had been using it, this law, for, for personal application. Right? They were teaching the people to be one willing to engage in conflict if you were personally insulted instead of walking in humility, which again is evidence of true righteousness. So Jesus says instead of retaliating in verse 39, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. And then he goes on to give three illustrations of retaliation and what that looks like, specifically retaliating when you are justified, right? when you are honked at first. The first example 
in verse 39, we see as someone being slapped on the side of the face. And he says, then turn and let your opponent slap the other cheek. And just to be clear, I, I don't believe uh, what Jesus is saying. If someone just comes up and, and cold cocks you and knocks you out, you should just get up and say, thank you, give me another, right? But this is in reference to someone insulting you, someone attacking your character or your honor. Similarly, Jesus says in verse 40, if someone wants to take your tunic, give him your cloak also. If someone wants to sue you, take advantage of you, or take your personal belongings instead of having a a big public dispute, it would be better to go ahead and give up your belongings. And lastly, in verse 41, he says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And this is a a reference to a custom in which the Roman government could legally force a citizen to carry his belongings. An example of this is when uh, Simon of Serene was pulled out of the crowd to help carry Jesus' cross. And so after these three examples uh, we see of how we are supposed to react to a situation, uh, Jesus throws out something else in verse 42, and it, it doesn't really seem to go with the rest. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so this has to do with someone asking for something that would tax you personally, that would cause you an inconvenience. It would take something that you have earned and that you had a right to, and the other person had not earned, and they do not have a right to, but yet you should give it to them merely because they are asking for it, which practically makes no sense. But in all of these examples, Jesus is making the point to put other people's interest above your own, to put other people's welfare above your welfare, to put other people's rights above your rights, to put other people's lot. Am I doing that? Am I the one doing that? Put other people's rights above your rights. I'm sorry. Get happy up here. I guess I'm kicking the pulpit. And Jesus is not just talking about people, right? He's not just talking about your family. He's not just talking about your friends. He's not just talking about your neighbors, but he's actually talking about people who want to harm you. People who desire to bring evil against you. People who, in some cases, they are considered your enemies. Or at the very least, they're people who who bring no value to your life, right? They, they, They are beggars. They just want to take what you have earned. And so in all of these people who want to take away your rights... You should respond so radically different than how we are wired, than how we are expected to respond. And so immediately the question that that came to my mind as I was reading through this, and, and probably comes to your mind, is why would Jesus tell us to give up our rights to protect ourselves, to to fight back, to stand up for ourselves in the court of law, to defend our honor? Why would he tell us to resist our our natural intuition to defend ourselves from personal insult and attack? And the answer is is simple. We've already stated it. It's because everything we do, everything we say, how we respond, it communicates a message. And that message should cause others to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Again, I want to point out how counterintuitive it is to respond that way, to, to resist retaliation. It's not natural. But Jesus doesn't leave it there, right? He, he actually, he expects us to live in the same way that he lived. And so he takes it up a notch in verses 43 and 44. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. 
Again, our message is salvation, church. If it was supposed to bring others to glorify our Father who is in heaven, then we should be willing to communicate the message in the most effective way possible. Sam Storms, he says it like this. Nothing will more quickly capture the attention of non-Christians than loving your enemies, if only because nothing is more contrary to human nature and more in conformity with divine nature. Nothing is more contrary to human nature and more in conformity with divine nature than to love your enemies. The idea to, to love my enemy, it, it, it seems so opposite to how I feel I should respond to, to injustice I see in the world, right? In fact, I, I've just been looking at things that's come up this week, and, and the governor of Illinois on Wednesday, he signed in what may be most, the most radically progressive abortion bill we have ever seen. It, it allows for abortion up to the moment of birth. And inside of me, I, I want to define someone as my enemy so I could hate them. I want to justify my hate. As a father, and thinking of other fathers, I, I think back to the judge in Canada a few months ago who ruled against the father that was trying to stop his 14-year-old girl from starting hormone treatments and transitioning into a boy. Because the school counselor had convinced the little girl at 14 that she had gender dysphoria and was really a little boy on the inside. And when the father tried to intervene and stop the daughter from taking steroids, something that would permanently affect this little girl's life, the judge ruled the father was being physically abusive. In fact, the judge said that the father was not even allowed to identify his girl as a girl. Sometimes, church, I hate my enemies. Sometimes I want to identify those that disagree with my ideology and my theology and direct my anger at them, placing them in a category of those that I despise. The idea of loving my enemies, it does not come natural. It's not how I'm wired to think. And as a Christian, I think it's very easy for us to, to look at these injustices and then justify hating people. But that's not the example we're given to follow. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you so that, they may be, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Our response to our enemies is to love them and to pray for them. It's much easier for me to fight. That comes naturally. I used to be good at that. But instead, our response to offense to someone that is against us, to someone that is promoting injustice in the world, is to petition to God on their behalf. After the Apostle Paul, he had been arrested, and he's standing before King Agrippa, and he's pleading his case, and he's describing his conversion. He says, speaking about what Jesus told him to do, he says, to whom I am sending you, to whom I am sending you, the, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, right? The, the wicked, the enemies, to who I am sending you. I'm sending you there to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and be placed among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Church, this should be our prayer for our enemies. 
that their eyes may be opened and they turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, and that they receive forgiveness and they join us who have been sanctified by faith in our community. And as we petition to God, it will mean that we have to endure evil in the world and all types of injustices. We will have to endure attacks from our enemies. But God gives us this example of how to love patiently, enduring all types of rebellion, all types of rejection. And he does this himself because he desires to see all come to him. 2 Peter 3-9 through says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In verse 45, Jesus says, God, every day he provides the, the basic blessing of life to those that reject him. This is what he means, right? The sun rises on the evil and on the good. Every day, he allows those that deny his name to breathe in and to breathe out. Every day, God... He allows those that curse him to experience the beauty of sunrise and the sunset. Every day he allows the wicked to eat good food, to enjoy good drink, to enjoy making love, to enjoy success, all while refusing to acknowledge his existence. God patiently loves the world because he desires their salvation. In true righteousness, it demands that we communicate that same message. In verse 48, Jesus says, seems to say what, what might be the most radical statement of, of the entire sermon. He says, you therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Talking about love. The only way we can love the way that Jesus loved, a perfect love, is to keep going back to the cross. Right? Lest we forget who we were before Christ intervened on our life and saved our wicked soul. And it doesn't matter if you were saved at five years old or five days ago. Without God's mercy on your life, you were lost in your transgression. Without God's mercy on your life, you had no hope. Without God's mercy on your life, you were the enemy. In fact, I was thinking back just to, right before I came on stage, my sister just texted me. Uh, she's, she's at River Valley, and, and this morning, uh, Teen Challenge is at River Valley, I guess, and she Text me to say that Teen Challenge was leading the service. And, and I'm someone who went through Teen Challenge. I, I, I'm a product of someone who lived a horrible, wicked life that, that the church would easily look at as someone who would be the enemy, right? And yet, and yet I'm up here and I'm preaching on Father's Day because I have a good father who loved me despite that. Right? I had a good earthly father who loved me despite the way that I lived, who did not look at me as the enemy, but instead desired me to be saved. Jesus, who, who lived the perfect life with perfect righteousness, fulfilling the law, taking the undeserved punishment for our sins, therefore all our wrongs have been wiped clean, and we are a new creation in Christ, church. And because you are a new creation, God lives in you, and he works through you. I'd like to invite the worship team to go ahead and come back up. God living in us and working through us, it allows us to fight back on our natural tendency to retaliate and to hate and instead communicate the message of salvation, 
drawing others back to God. The Apostle Paul, he, he puts it like this. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We employ you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because Jesus reconciled us to the Father, we also have the obligation to reconcile others back to the Father by the way that we interact, by the way that we live, by the way that we choose not to retaliate, by the way that we choose to love our enemies. That's the message that we have. That message is salvation. And so this morning, I, I want to give you two calls. One, if you don't know what I'm talking about this morning, you have no clue why it's wrong to honk back at a car in a parking lot, why you should resist retaliating when you're justified in your retaliation, I want to tell you about Jesus this morning. I want to tell you why we should actually love our enemies. In fact, the whole idea of enemy actually gets thrown away right, when Jesus is asked who his neighbor is by a lawyer, and he gives a definition, and that neighbor is actually who the guy thought the enemy would be in the Good Samaritan. And so as a Christian, we really don't have enemies. We just have people who sin differently than us. And our call is to love them and to bring them in community with us. And so if you don't know about Jesus this morning, I'd love to tell you about him. Also, I mean, if you're wrestling with that idea, if you're wrestling with how not to hate, maybe, you, maybe you've justified your hate because of the injustice we see in the world. It's easy to do for us. It's easy to look at people making choices, making policies that we know are wrong, that we know are unjust, and, and to hate them instead of loving them. Maybe you just need to get your heart right with the Lord this morning. And I pray that he convicts you and you seek forgiveness. And he is faithful and he is just and he forgives us. He's patient with us. So let's take some time this morning to worship, to pray. We'll have some people on the sides that will pray for you. I'll be up at the front if you need prayer. Let's take some time to just praise God and, and thank him for the, for the gift of salvation that we have this